Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that human beings live most effectively and in the most healthy ways when we live in community. Community means we know everyone around us by name or at least by face. When we do that, we human beings tend to be cooperative, collaborative animals. We like doing things together. We like inventing things together. We like playing together. Whether it's a sewing circle or a poker game or watching a game on television or throwing around something or eating together, we just love eating together in circles. We're tribal animals, and we have been throughout all of our existence. We like being together. At the very same time, we must also be aware that there's a very small percentage of us that are very different. This group of humans are predators and dominators. This group would prefer to have subjects than citizens. Going way back to times in Egypt that's recorded when the pharaohs ruled 99% of the population, you can move forward at various times in history, perhaps when Caesar crossed the Rubicon and changed the Roman Empire, which he didn't change the Roman Empire, he changed the Roman Republic, which was an early experiment with democracy and republic. Remember, the Greeks had the first one, a brief experiment with democracy and republic, then the Romans again, and then Caesar changed it into an empire. And from then on, the world was pretty much ruled by what I call gangsters. They called themselves kings. They were the people who came out of the caves with the biggest clubs, eventually ruled the little villages and then the towns, and then they put a perimeter around their territory eventually and called it a country. Remember, countries are made up of boundaries made up by man. When you go out in space and look down at the earth, you don't see countries. You see one planet, which is what we are. But these dominated predators carve out space which they want to rule. And then what happened? A few hundred years ago, we overturned that system. We rebelled against a king named George, and we rebelled against the church because the kings had made a deal with the churches, remember, to rule by what was called divine right. So if you went against the king, you went against the church, you had your head chopped off, and the church was behind it. We rebelled against that, and we did a creation, which is our present experiment with democracy and republic. But remember, folks, it's an experiment, and it's a fragile one, and we must do what we can to maintain it, because there are those, as I said, whether it's Caesar, you can go to Napoleon, you can jump into the 20th century with Hitler and Mussolini. You can come into the 21st century with people like Bolsonaro and Putin and Trump. These are all people who would rule and have subjects. We must defend our democracy and our republic, and that means we've got to get out and vote to protect what we have. In the words of one of my favorite heroes, Thomas Jefferson, Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Right now in our country, we're going through what some people consider to be a perfect storm of challenges. We have the pandemic that we just came through, the pandemic where we took tribal animals, isolated ourselves, created alienation, and we now have what some consider an epidemic of anxiety and depression. We're going to hear about that from our guest today. We also have climate change, which is going on. We have major economic stratification, where 70% of our country right now are living paycheck to paycheck. These all are not sustainable. These are things we must do something about. Our guest today, Dr. Amy McGuire, is working on doing something about it. Dr. Amy McGuire is the Leon Jaworski Professor of Biomedical Ethics 
and director of the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at Baylor University in Texas. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Amy. Thank you. What's on your radar screen nowadays, Amy, in your work, your professional work? What's first and foremost? Well, I mean, as usual, there are a lot of, um, you know, the work that we do at Baylor College of Medicine is really focused on ethical issues in today's changing world and in our changing environment in biomedicine and biomedical research. There's a lot that's at the frontier of how we think about um, health and how we uh, treat illness. And so um, you mentioned one of the things that's really been front of mind for me for several years, which is the mental health epidemic that we're currently in. And it's it's partly, I think, in response to some of the things that you talked about with regard to social, social isolation during the pandemic. Um, but I think there's other sort of factors that are that are feeding into why so many people in our society are suffering um, and how they're suffering and how what we might be able to do to try to um, relieve some of that suffering. Am I accurate when I'm stating that we have what could be considered an epidemic of mental health issues with regard to anxiety and depression? Well, we've certainly seen a tremendous increase in the prevalence of anxiety and depression population-wide. Um, prior to the pandemic, I think the numbers were at about uh, 11% of the population reporting symptoms or clinically significant symptoms of anxiety or depression. And throughout the pandemic, that number rose to about 40%. In some surveys, it was even greater than 40%. So, and then, you know, of course, there was a, a really well-publicized, really pithy and fantastic article that Adam Grant um, wrote in the New York Times that talked about those those in society who aren't actually suffering from clinical symptoms of anxiety or depression, but are still suffering from some sense of um, just indifference or he, as he calls it, meh, kind of like things are just meh and, and why there's, there's a, a lack of um, motivation and um, enthusiasm in, in our lives today. Meh. That's an interesting word. <laughs> it, you know, it sounds to me like, sort of a modern variation, and check me out on this, of what the French existentialists called ennui. They called it the sickness unto death. It was a kind of existential boredom, which is very dangerous because it's sort of like one step just this side of depression. Yeah. Yeah, so it may not be um, caught in clinical evaluations for people who meet the clinical criteria for a mental health disorder like depression or anxiety, but it's still not healthy, um, and we still want to try to address sort of what's going on there, right? Well, it, the, the number that you just put out is dramatic, Amy, that we went from 11% of the population manifesting symptoms to 40%. Mm -hmm. I don't... Is 40% of the population manifesting mental health symptoms sustainable for a culture? So, I mean, it, I, it's certainly not healthy for a culture, um, and it's definitely not healthy for individuals. And, you know, we'll have to kind of see, I think there's been a lot of effort over the last couple of years to try to address what's going on. Um, and we're going to need to continue to do that. And it has to be done both at the individual level and also at the sort of public health level, because when you have numbers like that, you're really dealing with a, a public health situation and not just um, an individual situation. So we need to be addressing sort of like, what can we do to help individuals, but how can we also change our systems? How can we change our culture in ways that promotes healthier living um, and healthy, better mental health across the population? From your exalted position, can you see evidence of changes either starting or being put into practice on either a local, statewide, or national level? Is there anything happening, Amy? So I think there's certainly more attention being paid. I think the Surgeon General has done a really fantastic job of calling attention to sort of the mental health crisis that's, that's going on and calling for um, interventions to help. Um, there's been a lot more effort to make mental health services more broadly available through telemedicine and other um, technological advances that I think sh we should see some, some benefit from that. Um, and I think, but I think there's, there's kind of a social movement 
to try to acknowledge some of the deep-seated roots behind what is causing suffering among different populations. So we've seen that with regard to really shining a light in a new way on issues around structural racism and things like that. Um, And then we've also seen resurgence of interest in use of novel therapeutics, and they're not so novel. These are therapeutics that have uh, that date back to millennia of um, psychedelics, and that's been a, an area that we've looked a lot into. There's a tremendous amount of work being done now looking at how can we go back to plant medicine um, and develop uh, drugs that have psychedelic properties that might help address some of our severe mental health challenges, as well as some of this existential angst that we're seeing in society today. Are you implying that people at high levels of government, be they statewide or national, are actually considering the possibility of using psychedelic medicines as treatment for this, what we're calling an epidemic of mental illness? Yeah, so there's been quite a bit of research that has gone on over the last um, decade or so, um, looking at the therapeutic potential for both prim- focused primarily on um, MDMA and uh, psilocybin, which is the uh, co- the compound that's in magic mushrooms, to treat various mental health conditions. In fact, the U.S. Uh, Food and Drug Administration or the FDA declared that MD- both MDMA and psilocybin breakthrough therapies for mental health disorders. For MDMA, it's for treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, And there's been some really fascinating studies showing its effects in post-traumatic stress disorder, particularly among veterans and other populations that have high prevalence of PTSD. Um, And for psilocybin, it's been used in some studies very successfully to treat um, severe depression. And so it was named a breakthrough therapy for severe depression several years ago by FDA. Um, lots of states are starting to weigh in on this. We've seen decriminalization um, policies emerge in both Oregon and Colorado, um, as well as in some local jurisdictions. There's a lot of discussion and anticipation that the FDA is going to probably approve the first psychedelic medicines within the next year or two. And so a lot of people are starting to think about how we prepare for that within society. So you you see that there's actually some hope on the horizon for these novel medicines? I mean, I know that Rick Doblin has been attempting to get MDMA approved by the FDA for the last 37 years and still hasn't gotten the ball across the goalpost. And uh, each year that I talk to him, he says to me, it's next year and it's next year and it's next year. Uh, Rick and I have been friends uh, for uh, many decades and uh, he stayed with me recently at my home when he was out here in California and told me that the MAP, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Science, is within $80 million of getting FDA approval. So it's a little confusing to me to hear, on the one hand, that FDA has named MDMA and psilocybin as being breakthroughs, yet at the same time, they seem to be withholding or stalling, actually giving FDA approval so that the medicine can be used as a medicine. What do you make of that? Well, you know, the FDA process is is not a quick one. Um, I think that <laughs> ma- MAPS, is, <laughs> that shouldn't come as a surprise, but I think MAPS is probably closer than it has been ever um, in its pursuit to, to uh, get FDA approval. I think the um, bipartisan support is there. I think the enthusiasm is there um, and the research is getting there. Um, but FDA needs a body of evidence that's, um, you know, that, that can support the safe and effective, um, implementation of, um, drug products. And, uh, so far the, the studies have been very promising, um, but we're still a little bit in early days. And so there's a big question of sort of when do you approve a product for general consumption? How, uh, good does the evidence have to be? prior to going to market, and then what mechanisms are put into place to make sure that safety, that the products are safe and can be used safely and effectively post-market. And so I think that's sort of the political struggle right now is figuring out what when will the evidence achieve the the threshold of uh, approval, and then um, 
how, what kind of what kind of data do we need to be collecting post approval to make sure that it's working in the ways that we think it ought to be working? Well, it's uh, it's 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 both encouraging and discouraging to me at the same time because I'm aware of the research and the research has been going on for a very long time. The research on post traumatic stress disorder with with MDMA is very convincing. I don't know what more they need to see at this point and what I don't know what the forces are that are keeping the approval from coming through uh, and that's on MDMA yet when we had a pandemic with COVID we sure got some vaccines through for federal approval very quickly and so given that it's taken 37 years and we still don't have MDMA through on approval it makes me wonder how seriously the government is taking the mental health crisis that you and I are talking about. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm, excuse me. I mean, I'm really excited to hear that you can say that the Surgeon General of the United States is aware of the of the seriousness of the mental health problem. I, that's exciting to me that he, that he's or she is actually is it a male or a female? He he. It's exciting to me that he's even aware of it and acknowledges it because you don't hear this on the news. I mean, there are certain things to me that seem to be so hidden that it's bothersome. I want to give you another example of this. From my perspective, one of the most serious symptoms that the United States is facing and has been facing is the obesity overweight epidemic. In the 20 years I've been broadcasting this program, we have gone from 58% of the population being obese or overweight to now over 70% of the population. Some of my colleagues are predicting that in less than 10 years, 87% of the population will be obese or overweight at the present rate of increase. You're a psychologist. So am I. We look. No, I'm not a psychologist. Oh, Just to your, put that. Excuse me. I thought your PhD <laughs> was in psychology. No, it's in medical ethics and, and health humanities. I beg your pardon. Yeah. Okay. I'm a psychologist. When I see 72% of the population manifesting one symptom, one of the things I say to myself is, what is this culture telling us as a culture when 72% of the pop of us are expressing a deleterious symptom, a symptom that we all know who study any of this is connected to cardiovascular problems, connected to diabetes, maybe connected to cancer. There's no direct relationship between obesity, overweight, and cardiovascular and diabetes. There's no question about that. So I say, what, I, I say to myself and my friends, what are we saying? What are we saying? You're telling us now that we've gone from 11% to 40% with regard to anxiety and depression symptoms. And I'm adding to this, 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 this overweight obesity epidemic. Is this not very serious? So I think it's serious and I don't think we should take sort of the government process and the and the slowness in the government process to mean that people don't care about the problem. Um, you know, I think that would be a an overreach in interpreting sort of what's going on. You know, there's good reason that sort of approval processes for new drugs takes time. Um, and the FDA has been criticized for taking way too much time in certain circumstances. So it's it's very it's very challenging to try to strike the right balance where you're making sure that what goes to market to consumers and to patients is safe and it's potentially effective for the indications that it's marketed for while at the same time making sure that you can expeditiously review the data that's being generated to make those decisions so that you're not withholding potentially beneficial treatments from patients who really really need it um, and that's a, that's a difficult balance to strike. And I'm not going to argue that the FDA always gets it right. They certainly don't. 
but I do think it's um, it's very complicated and it's not an easy sort of, it's not an easy, they're doing it right or they're doing it wrong kind of solution, I think. Do you know the FDA people well enough to say that their board is not overloaded with pharmaceutical company present and former executives who have a vested interest in, in, in stalling off psychedelics? Because, for example, Roland Griffith's study at, at John Hopkins indicated that with one or two sessions of psilocybin, there was a relief from depression a year later, which is just the opposite of what the pharmaceutical companies are doing when they're selling SSRIs that have to be taken every single day. Because if these novel medicines go through, the pharmaceutical companies could lose their annuities. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know the FDA well enough to to be able to comment on that and what interests are at stake here. Uh-huh. I, you know, I I do think that the one point that you're bringing up that's an important point to keep in mind is that as in all products, including drug products, it's big business. Um, and there are commercial interests. I mean, it was estimated that in the next four or five years, the psychedelic industry is going to be a $10 billion industry. So people are going to be making money um, in some capacity. And whenever there's money involved, there's always interests and potentially competing interests that can drive policy and that can drive action. And so it's very important to kind of think about what those interests are and make sure that, you know, that we're, we're doing the best science and that we're, um, understanding the properties of these, of these compounds and, and how they work and, and for whom they work and when they work and, uh, making sure that they become available to the people who need them in ways that are beneficial to them and, and provide efficacious treatment without providing too much, you know, without causing too much risk or harm. Do the products that are being sold mostly to people of lower socioeconomic brackets, which are what some of us consider to be relatively empty calories, which put on weight without really great benefit to the energy system, is the sale of those products, does that come within your wheelhouse of medical ethics? So that is not a topic that I have worked on um, personally. So, you know, depending on on the issue that you're talking about, it might fall within the the field of bioethics or medical ethics, but it's not a topic that I've worked on personally. Okay, but the topic of how to use or misuse psychedelics is within your your area of expertise. So we do have a program um, at Baylor College of Medicine that's looking at ethical and policy implications of, of the use of psychedelics in society and its integration into the healthcare system as well as its use outside of the healthcare system. So, yes. As your group or the group at Baylor, are you working on uh, guidelines to ensure safe and effective psychedelics? Is that part of what they do or you do? That's part of what we're trying to do. There's a lot of groups out there that are trying to develop guidelines, but we, um, we've we recently helped organize a, a a meeting where we had multidisciplinary people who are, who are involved in this space kind of come together and think through what is the landscape going to look like post-FDA approval and what might be some guidelines that we need to be thinking about um, with regard to the integration of these drug products into Western medical practice, recognizing that there are other um, there are other circumstances under which they might be used, both for medicinal and non-medicinal purposes. And is it also within your, your sphere of, of research and work creating guidelines? for adherence to policies regarding the use of these medicines? What do you mean by Well, in other guideline? words, you, you can put a policy into place, but then you need some way of enforcing the policy and or, sure, or so- something out to the public. For example, um, with psilocybin. Psilocybin, in a way, in terms of getting it individually, has a similarity to alcohol in that alcohol is relatively easy to make, although there aren't many people making it at home anymore because it's easy to purchase. The same thing is true with psilocybin. It's very easy to grow the mushrooms in one's home. So people really aren't, they don't really have to go to a pharmacy or a store if it's made legal in order to purchase it. They could grow their own. 
Uh, whereas that's very different with something like LSD or MDMA, which is much more complicated for the uh, almost uh, m most people to make. You need a chemist to make those things. So once you need a chemist, I can see how you could create guidelines, guidelines for what the substance is, guidelines for how they're sold and how they're regulated. I, I'm, I'm wondering how that's done when you have something like magic mushrooms, which people go, like marijuana, you can grow in your backyard. It's another example for that. And, and many people yeah. do. And that's part of what happened with marijuana in this country as it, it's been illegal for so long is that there were people growing their own. And of course, the black market people are growing their own and selling it. Right. So um, so it is possible and there is sort of precedent for like uh, government agencies like the FDA to regulate botanicals, naturally occurring substances. It's much more difficult for many of the reasons that you point out. One is that it's um, more difficult to ensure sort of a centralized distribution program, like where are you getting it from? And as well as, you know, naturally grown mushrooms, for example, they have many, many different compounds that are present in them and you don't know how much of each compound is in each single mushroom. And so it's very difficult to ensure consistency and know exactly what you're getting when you're treating a patient. And so it becomes more difficult to regulate that. Um, and when we talk about sort of, you know, ensuring adherence to policies and guidelines, there's many different policies that can, you know, at different levels, right? So there may be federal laws that are in place that have its own system of adherence, right? If you break a federal law, there could be civil or criminal penalties associated with that. There are state laws. There's policies at the, like, the level of state licensure boards for you know, physicians and what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do and who's qualified to be a physician and those sorts of things. So there's different levels of policy and how you ensure adherence to different policies will depend on kind of the the level that you're at and, and what the policy is. Yeah, because see, part of my thinking is that using marijuana, for example, I don't recall, and, 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 and you maybe know a lot more, hopefully, on this. I don't recall ever seeing what I call honest information from the government on how to use marijuana. Because it's been illegal, it's almost like that kind of information one has to get from either word of mouth or now that we have the Internet, what people put on the Internet. But there are no, yeah. you know, there are no guidelines there's no um, harm reduction policy where the government would come out and say, okay, marijuana is illegal, but we know a lot of you are using it. So here we're going to tell you if you're using it, even though we don't condone it, here are some guidelines to how you don't get in trouble. For example, it, it, and if you smoke this much, it's hard to tell what's in it. You don't know what the consistency is and, you know, sort of warnings like that. And I'll give you a good example of this. Someone I know bought some marijuana brownies. Well, when you, when you smoke a, a marijuana cigarette and you take a puff, if you, have, you can have a reaction very quickly because it's an um, administration right into the, uh, into the capillaries in the mouth. The buccal system goes right in. You know, it's very quick and you feel it. So... You, you can sort of self-regulate as to when to stop, for many people at least. You don't keep smoking 10 times if you have the re, you know enough of a reaction in one or two times. But that isn't the case with edibles. So what happened with this person I know is they weren't aware of how much to eat, and they ate the whole cookie. Well, they went into cosmic hyperspace. Now, if you're in your home... And you go into the cosmic hyperspace. I mean, nobody dies from marijuana. It's not lethal. But if you do it in your home, okay, you can lay down in bed, you can sit in a chair, and you can sort of wait it out. This happened to the person in an automobile. And when I heard about it, I thought, I wonder how many people around the country have had that happen in automobiles because they weren't aware of the fact that when you eat it, you can't titrate in the same way. You don't know how much you had. And then all of a sudden, you see what I'm getting at. 45 minutes later, they got hit, you know, and uh, with, a, with a massive dose. Those are the kind of guidelines I'm sort of, you know, asking about how they 
you know, how we could possibly create or look forward to in order to protect the public and sort of acknowledge the fact that people are going to use these things, whether they're legal or not. And what do we, how can we protect? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there are obviously some basic safety, um, safety parameters of, you know, whenever you're taking a mind altering substance, you shouldn't be in an automobile or drive, or at least I hope he wasn't driving, but, um, no, no, <laughs> but you should Fortunately, be driving an automobile. Not driving. <laughs> right. Take it. Good. Um, so, the, you know, there's sort of a double edged sword here that I think you're getting at, which is that, and I think cannabis is a great example to look at this. So, um, when there's some evidence that suggests that there are, there could be some, therapeutic benefit with the use of a substance like cannabis, one impulse is to say, well, let's make it as broadly available. Let's decriminalize it. Let's make it legal. Let's give people access to it because because there's a lot of people out there suffering. And if it can help people, they should be able to use it and they should have access to it. One of the challenges with that is that when you have very, very broad access, as we've seen with cannabis, um, where in many of the states now it's been decriminalized and, and you can get access to it through your local dispensary. We have less incentive for individuals to participate in sort of like randomized clinical trials to really understand the science behind it, to understand how much marijuana do you need to treat this particular condition under these circumstances? Where How should you be taking it? Is it better to eat it or smoke it? Is it better to, you know, wh- what do we... What are the details of what we need to know about how to treat a patient who has a medical diagnosis with that particular substance? And the, the best way to know how to do that is to do randomized controlled trials where you put people on that you give them a placebo, you give them the test, um, or you give them, you know, something else and you, and you compare the, um, the effects and you compare sort of the outcomes. There's less incentive for people. If I'm suffering significantly from, let's say, um, I'm going through chemotherapy treatments and I'm very, very ill from it. And I've heard smoking marijuana can make me feel better. Am I going to enter a randomized clinical trial where there's a 50% chance that I'm not going to get the cannabis that make me, may make me feel better? Or am I going to go to my local dispensary and just try it and see if it works for me and do some self-experimentation? Most people are going to do the latter. And what that does is it prevents us from having sort of the really strong evidence that's necessary to be able to put out those that information to be able to say when you're suffering from this particular condition under these circumstances, this is, this is exactly what you need to take, how much of it, you know, and what's going to benefit you the most. And so that's, that was my comment about needing more data for psychedelics is to really understand before FDA approval, right? And it becomes really widely available or before state decriminalization, where we go down the same path that we went down with with cannabis is to really understand what is the science? What is, you know, how does this work for whom, under what circumstances, when administered, how, like in psychedelics, there's a lot of debate and discussion about um, how psychedelics work. And many people believe that it's really just an adjunct to intensive psychotherapy, that it primes people to be uh, more vulnerable and open to the psychotherapeutic process. Um, but there hasn't been a ton of research that has suggested what does that process need to look like? And is that true? If you take the, you know, if you, if you don't have that process in place, can you still have the same effect? And, you know, even if you do have that process in place, how many sessions are needed? What kind of, what kind of psychotherapy is most effective during those sessions? And we have theories about that and we have some best practices that have emerged from the field. Um, but maybe additional research to try to understand that better. And it might be different for different for different mental health conditions, right? So somebody with, you know, OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder may respond differently to different therapeutic regimens than somebody with severe or intractable depression. So I think I, that's where I think we need to kind of continue to build our evidence base so that we can most effectively educate both clinicians and potential patients or consumers um, about not only what's safe, but what's going to be optimally effective for them. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I think the buzz that I hear around the country from people in the psychedelic world uh, shares that view uh, more and more that uh, the psychotherapy that follows the event is, uh, is uh, the critical variable, that these things are not a one-time panacea where you take them and you're cured. 
Uh, in fact, I've taken now to liken it to uh, the psychedelic experience is uh, like uh, having someone open up your inner gold mine and the therapy that comes that you do afterwards is taking each of the nuggets that you found in that mine and polishing them and, uh, and evolving with them and then practicing with them. But if you don't do the polishing and the practice, you had a one-time experience, it might be a great experience, but it's not necessarily going to create the kind of behavior change that you want in order to improve your mental health or whatever it was, some issues that you, uh, that you went in with. Of course, there's a whole other area having to do with psychedelics that doesn't get talked about yet because we're, we're focusing on the, you and I and the country really is focusing on the medical applications of these medicines uh, and that the, the area that's not yet being really focused on that I think will take a long time but will come is how these uh, medicines uh, affect creativity and, and ingenuity because the so it started, it's, you've, we started to see some buzz about that and discussion about that. I saw an article, I think it was in The Economist, um, or one of the, maybe I'm wrong about that, but one of the, the news articles that came out that was talking about, you know, Silicon Valley businesses having psychedelic retreats for their employees in order to stimulate creativity. And so I think there's been, you know, that raises a whole bunch of issues around employment law and, and yeah. you know, sort of uh, what we're thinking, you know, how we think about integrating this into business practices and things like that. But I do think it kind of hints at what you're talking about, which other people are are thinking about additional uses of psychedelics beyond sort of the therapeutic um, potentials. And that that kind of moves us into the realm of is this some sort of enhancement? Are people going to be at a disadvantage if they, for medical reasons or for their own personal preferences, decide that not to use psychedelics? Are they going to be sort of um, disadvantaged in business? Are they going to be viewed as being less creative? Are they going to, in fact, be less creative? Are they or less productive? Or you know, so I think it raises a whole lot of issues in how we think about the use of psychedelics, not just therapeutically, but potentially for certain types of enhancement. That's a point really well taken, Amy, because I'm thinking as you're talking that we don't allow certain enhancement drugs to be used in athletics, right? If mm -hmm. an Olympic champion is caught doping their blood with certain kinds of substances, they're eliminated. Now we're talking about people in business, people in the, in the tech world, doping their, their, their neurotransmitters, and they're going to get a leg up. I, I, I'm thinking about how the, te the great tennis player, Nara Talova, got a tremendous leg up when she was one of the first, if not the first, to travel with a nutritionist and a psychologist. And what she mm -hmm. got from those two consultants was a tremendous leg up. And it's well known in Silicon Valley, whether it's known around the country or not, but it's known in Silicon Valley that Watson and Crick used psychedelics when they discovered the DNA model that uh, that that Carl Sagan used uh, psychedelics in his uh, astrophysics work. That Steve Jobs used psychedelics in in his work with Apple. And when people like that, you know, come out and talk about the fact that they think that these psychedelics help them make these great discoveries, it has an impact. There's no question. Uh, yeah, there was a recent article that was talking about Sergey Brin and and Elon Musk both using psychedelics, and so similar similar you know discussion of, of very successful business people coming out and saying yes, I've I've used psychedelics and and I use it and it helps me in my in my business. And you know this is not an entirely new conversation. We've we've had this conversation around the use of like ADHD you know stimulant medications that people might take off label or or you know that aren't prescribed for them yeah. in order to gain focus and things like that and get a leg up. So it's part of a larger conversation around what we deem appropriate as a society. Um, where do you draw the line between doping in sports and having a nutritionist and, and a psychologist? I mean, that's a, it's a great example because that there is, I think most of us can agree that, you know, one's okay, the other's not, but like, where is exactly is that line where we, where we start to get uncomfortable, right? Right, right. I just saw this movie about uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he talks, yeah. he talks very openly about the fact that all the bodybuilders were using steroids. And he, talks, yep. he even talked about what the protocol was, right? Yeah, I just saw that too. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> I want to move on to another topic, and it's a, sure. it's a very personal one in your life which when I heard about really touched me quite deeply. 
And that's the story about your son and his friends and about how it's your story about how your son and his friends told you that they knew of nine deaths of, uh, I, I think I got the number right, of nine deaths of people uh, in their late teens or early 20s who had either, who died from suicide or what other, and, and, and you talk about, and I want you to talk about now, what you see is the societal implications of your making that discovery in your own family. Yeah, thank you for that. So this was a story I actually told a couple of years ago, and I'm sad to say the number is now 10 because we had another um, friend pass away recently. I was really amazed at this. I have three boys um, that I'm raising. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they're now 22, 20 and uh, 17. Um, So this was a couple of years ago when I think they were 20, 18 and let's say 15. I was just, you know, I I had been visiting my 20 year old at college. it, we were, I was moving him back in after the summer and he, we were with two of his friends and we were talking about a good friend of theirs who had, uh, very recently at their college passed away. Um, unintentionally, he had been taking Xanax, drinking alcohol, had a bad mix and overdosed. And it was really, really upsetting to them. And they were kind of talking about it and we were sort of processing it over dinner. And, and, uh, what really struck me is, is that they, did not seem terribly surprised about the fact that this had happened. Um, I was very surprised that it had happened. Um, and they were just sort of like, oh, this is horrible again. You know, I can't believe this is, you know, that this happened to him. And I started to ask them, I said, you know, are you not surprised because you thought that this person had trouble or you went, you know, you thought that this might happen? And they said, no, not at all. Like, I actually didn't anticipate that this would happen with this person. They're like, but this has happened with a lot of people we know, like this is not an uncommon occurrence. So I did, I asked them, I said, how many people between the three of you do you know that have either died from suicide or from a drug overdose or some sort of, you know, accidental death that, that was brought on by drugs or alcohol? And, um, and between the three of them, they came up with nine friends. And I just remember thinking like, I can't imagine knowing nine people at the age of 20 who had died. Like that's, that was just insane to me. So what really, um, you know, it, it, I feel really fortunate that we were able to have like a really meaningful conversation about this because I kind of probed them and I said, it, they were really insightful as 20 year olds. I said, you know, what do you, what do you think is going on here? Like, this is crazy to me. And it doesn't seem, you don't seem to think it's crazy because I think it's just sort of what you grew up with, yeah. but what do you think is going on here? Um, and as the more we spoke about it, the more I really kind of got to the point where they just were. I realized that for a lot of young people, there's just this sense of a lack of meaning in their life, right? That they're looking to, you know, and, and suicide is one thing, but drugs and alcohol is also something that it's like an escape. They're looking for something to kind of numb either the pain or they're looking for something to sort of self-treat the anxiety or they're looking for something to sort of like give them some sense of meaning or something like that, that that's not in existence. And so that's that really kind of stimulated me to start thinking about this mental health crisis that we're currently in. And what can we be doing sort of broad, more broadly to address this? How can we be um, teaching our kids and ourselves and and those in our lives how to just slow down for a second and like, remember that, you know, life is about connection. Life is about having meaningful connection, right? Having like that, that opportunity to be fully present and to, to really feel like you are, you, you are seen by others, that you're, that you're connecting with others, that you're connecting with yourself, that you're living on a planet that's living and breathing and, and you have connection to all the things on the planet. Um, and I think that same sentiment is something that a lot of people who are proponents of the use of psychedelics talk about when they talk about psychedelic experiences is this, you know, trying to um, chase that or, or, or to have that experience of connection, of oneness, of, you know, that some people describe as being sort of transcendent or, you know, something like that. Um, but I don't, I don't think you need psychedelics to have that experience. I think it's one tool that can, that can create that experience for people. Um, but there are other ways to create that experience. And, um, and we need to be doing a better job, I think, of instilling the value of connection in our children um, and in ourselves. Well, the issue coming back to the psychedelic 
is that yes, psychedelics do provide and or can provide a remarkably transcendent experience. They can provide a sense of oneness with it all. I've experienced it myself many times. There's no question about that. But then you have to deal with day-to-day, and how do you, how do you create that meaning on a day-to-day basis? You can't keep taking the psychedelics every single day. Otherwise, you're signing on for what the big pharma is selling you, which, which is yeah. a, you know, a daily annuity with a drug. But this story that you tell is, is an important story, and that's why I came back to it after I, I, I heard your story, Amy, because these boys are boys of privilege. They're going to Absolutely. Co- they're, they're going to college. That's a privilege in and of itself. And they know now 10 people who have gone down this way. That means that they're speaking for boys and girls all over the country of privilege. I don't think this is a one-off just because in this one particular, unless this one college, you know, has the monopoly on this kind of behavior. I doubt it. We know that's not true. No. So, no. so. No, we have a national issue here, and and it, you're relating it to alienation in some way, to lack of connection, to lack of meaning, the things we talked about in the early part of our conversation today. I'm also relating it to the people in some way who are stuffing themselves with food as a way to fill some vacuum inside themselves, because that has to be at the core of it. It isn't just because they're being you know, uh, sold cheap food. It's also because they're overeating it as a way of filling a hole. And I come back to the question of what are we going to do about it? Yeah. What are we going to do so about me, it, right? Yeah, and I don't know if I can answer that, but let me, let me a couple of things you said that, that really struck me. So one is absolutely these were kids who come from tremendous privilege, right? They grew up in middle to upper class communities. Um, you know, they're going to college, they're well educated, they were white boys. You know, I mean, it's just so much uh, that was that was a, a, a in their favor. Um, and their friend groups as well. They have, you know, so I do think that the issue is probably much, 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 much just worse for people for you know, I mean, if if this is happening to them, it's happening like, you know, it's it's happening at a much uh more serious level to people who don't have access to those things. The other thing I'll say is, you know, I think as a parent of privilege, I can say that I have a friend who, and I, I just thought of this, I hadn't thought of this before, but I had a friend, I have a friend who um, had a child, my child's age, but she, it was her second marriage. So she had a couple of older stepchildren. And about five years before my kids became teenagers and entered this phase, I remember her telling me about her kids, her stepchildren, and she was telling me something very similar about how many of their friends were drug addicts, had died, had done these things. And I remember thinking, I wonder who her kids are hanging out with. That's not me. That's never going to be my kids. Look at, and I remember we were sitting at a, at a little league game because my kid, my son was like probably 11 at the time. And I was looking at the kids on his, that were playing little league with him. And I was like, I can't imagine any of these kids that being an issue for them. Not me. It will, that will never be me. And thinking back, it's like, I think we're all in such denial about this, right? Because it was some of those kids who are on the little league field who I'm talking about, right? I mean, it did everyone, it, nobody escapes it. Um, and it's not because you have bad kids. It's not because you grew up in a bad neighborhood. It's not because, you know, it's, it's just because, right? It's because it's hard to be a teenager these days. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of temptation and there's a lot of angst and there's a lot of depression and anxiety and people are just trying to figure out how to get through and oftentimes they turn to the wrong things. So I think that was another point that kind of occurred to me as you were talking. And then I think the last thing is, you know, you were talking about how do you, psychedelics may be able, may, not always, but may be able to create that sense of connection, that feeling of connection and how do you sustain that? And this I think really ties back to our discussion about um, the therapeutic use of psychedelics being really integrated into a therapeutic context and really trying to use it in a way to understand what's happening from a psychotherapeutic perspective. 
And one of my concerns is if we start to decriminalize psychedelics, and I'm not opposed to that, but if we do, I want to make sure that we're not creating a society where people are chasing that feeling through the use of psychedelics. So there's been a lot of literature that suggests that psychedelic substances are not themselves addictive in the way that other like opioids are. So people don't become sort of chemically addicted to them. But I've heard anecdotally a lot of people talking about communities or individuals who are just using psychedelics all the time. And when I've talked to them about it, what they describe it as is like it's a dependence on the the feeling. It's they're chasing the feeling. And it's because they're using them in ways that aren't really kind of, um, it's not sort of taking seriously what the substance can open for people. It's using it as the therapy itself. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. And so I don't know if that makes sense, but I think there is sort of the danger of, of the chase, right? Constantly chasing, well, I want to feel connected. And the only way I can feel connected is to be on a psychedelic. And so I have to keep taking the psychedelics to feel connected rather than this has taught me a new way that I can be. And how do, how do I use the other tools in my toolkit in everyday life to sustain that feeling or to cultivate that, those lessons that I learned during that experience? Right. Yeah. I, I think we're more at risk in uh, regarding what you're talking about with regard to marijuana than with the classic psychedelics. Because people can and do, and I've treated them, uh, smoke marijuana on a daily basis. Not only on a daily basis, there are those who get up in the morning and start smoking it. The issue with, uh, with say, LSD and psilocybin is that the effect that they have on the neurotransmitters is such that if you take it two days in a row, the second day you're not going to have the effect. And the third day you're going to have even less effect because you just wear out your serotonin, according to the researchers. So it's not as uh, sort of like heroin where you get a less effect, but then you take more heroin. So you get the effect. Then you take more and more and you keep taking more and more. And it's a class of addictive substance. But you can't take three times the amount of LSD after you've taken it and expect to get the response. You're just not going to get it. So there's sort of a safety built in there. But at the same time, I do know what you're talking about, that there are going to be people who are going to be chasing transcendence, right? Or chasing mm-hmm. getting out of the of the of the situation that we're living in, which you know, as I look think back on what we've said during this during this conversation today, it's it's not a rosy picture of the culture that we've created. It's uh, it's a it's a very uh, very challenging situation we've created for ourselves on a societal level. I, I went to the uh, city council of the little uh, t- city that I live in here in, uh, on the Pacific coast in Mendocino County in California. And I propose that they create a, uh, a citizens, a community morale commission to do research and to have town hall meetings and interview people on what can be done to raise the morale of the community. Because our little community, like little communities all over the country, is in a state of depression. You can see it when you walk down the street. The, there's like a, a vibration of, of downness rather than upbeatness. And it's been, it started pretty much with the recession in 2007 and 2008. And then the pandemic was like a one-two punch and so many businesses and people went under economically that the whole area has a feeling of depression. And so I've wondered, you know, that's why I asked you the question about, do you know of anything that's being done on the statewide or national level to deal with these issues that you and I are talking about? Because all of them, in one way or another, are under the umbrella of mental health. Everything we've said today, in one way or other, is affecting the mental health of the population. And yeah. I think we need, we need really a, a, a coordinated effort to acknowledge it and do something about it. And that's why I come back to having a little bit of tiny a bit of optimism when you say that the Surgeon General is aware that it's a serious problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say I, I tend to be an optimist, so I don't think it's all gloomy. I do think 
You know, I do think that for, well, first of all, even the pandemic, I, you know, I think that for, for many people, the pandemic really was an opportunity for them to, um, whether they wanted it or not, an opportunity to sort of reset what's important to them, what their values are. We've seen, you know, a lot of changes with regard to more hybrid work environments and people sort of really saying like, I, I want to live near family. I want to, you know, this is, this is what's really important to me. Like I realized, you know, life is short and, you know, I keep putting off the things that I really want to do. And, and, um, we're seeing more and more people now. I think I've seen a lot of people this year traveling saying, I didn't get to travel so for so long. That's really important to me. I realized like I can't keep putting off what I want to do forever because there may not be an opportunity for it to come. So, um, and I do think I couldn't agree with you more. I think more community wide efforts to address sort of mental health. I think one thing that people started to do during the pandemic is get outside more, which was fantastic, right? I think connecting to nature is really, really important for mental health. Um, and that can be really difficult to do in the daily grind of going from your home building to your work building to back to your home building and, you know, really not ever having an opportunity to just kind of be outside and, and remember that we're part of the sort of this larger ecosystem. So I love your idea of doing community events around this and, and to, to really sort of, um, for communities to come together around our mental health issues and create ways, um, both in city planning, which I think can help, right? Creating sort of the green spaces that are necessary, creating the, the activities that get people together and, and get them outside and things like that, as well as more, you know, potentially formal mechanisms of intervention with mental health. I think it could be really important. I think also workplaces can be another place, community, living communities, as well as workplaces that can be another place. And I know like at our, at our institution, there's been a lot of effort over the last several years to increase our resources available to, to our community of people who work at our institution, uh, regarding tracking your mental health, you know, getting help for mental health issues, making sure that you're sort of paying attention to your mental health in ways that it doesn't sort of sneak up on you. Our country, one of the founding principles was the separation of church and state. The college that you work at, Baylor, uh, is known as a Christian school. So let me just is that let accurate? me just correct you right here. That is not accurate. No. So so Baylor University is is a um, Christian university, um, I believe, but it is not connected with Baylor College of Medicine. So I work at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. It is a freestanding health science university. Ah. Um, is it is not a religious institution. So it, it's it's separate from the college in Waco. In fact, you're not even in the same city. You're in Houston, Texas. That's right. Yeah. What's the vibe in Houston, Texas post pandemic? How's Houston doing? You know, I think we're doing OK. Um, you know, we've I, I, all cities have their issues, but we have the largest uh, medical center in the world in Houston, Texas. And so we had a lot of activity going on during the pandemic, um, a lot of work that was being done and, you know, both good and bad. I think there was a lot of um a lot of difficulties within the medical center. I mean, it was really, really challenging to have such a traumatic public health crisis right at our front doors. Um, but it also brought the community together in really important ways. And everybody sort of had a common goal to help patients and to help families and to maintain health. And um, it really was inspiring to see how our community came together in the face of that. Does Houston seem to be holding up economically post-pandemic? Um, I think it is. I think, you know, there's certainly, you, you, just as you mentioned, you see stores that have gone out of business and, you know, and that's always very sad to see. And, and, but then there's new stores that are popping up. And I think, um, I think the economy is, is, um, seems to be, um, changing, but not, not going under. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. Just for a frame of reference, this little city that I'm in is a, approximately 7,500 people, 1,200 people representing perhaps, 1,200 people representing perhaps 3,000 people uh, eat out of the food bank uh, every, every um, month. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah. that's a big number. Yeah. That tells you something about what's going on. And for, yeah, fortunate, fortunately, we have an amazing food bank, which, has, uh, which is really feeding the 1,200 people but it's a sign of, of just how serious uh, our situation is. Yeah, the, I'm sorry to hear that. 
one of the most optimistic takeaways I have from our conversation is that I can tell that you are indeed an optimistic person. And given the, the, the high positions that you're in with regard to setting policy, I think it's a benefit for all of us to have you in the positions you're in. So I thank you for that and for the service that you're thank doing. You're... <laughs> so. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, same here. Thank you very much. And thank okay. you all, gentle listeners, for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I remind you that uh, we broadcast uh, a program at 9 o'clock every Tuesday morning. And, of course, everything we do is open source, free of charge, archived on our website, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. So until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All right.